2: Carl and John, thank you very much and welcome to the Halftime Report, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan in for Scott today, front and center this hour. What else? The crisis in Russia and Ukraine escalating and creating yet another volatile day for stocks and your money. We are debating the road ahead with your awesome investment committee today. Joining us for the entire hour, Stephanie Link. Jim Labenthal, Joe Terranova, and Josh Brown. All right, we're going to get to them in a moment. Right now, let's check the markets, which remain on edge. Stocks well off their lows. Oil is up. The communications services sector leading the S&P 500. Yes, a lot of red on the screen, not minimizing it. NASDAQ down more than 1%, Jim. But I will say this. We started Worldwide Exchange this morning. We got up. The Dow was down 500 in the futures market. NASDAQ futures down Two and a half percent, not minimizing these losses, but given what we saw early in the morning, buyers have come back into a bit. Your take on the action that we have seen so far today.
3: Yeah, I love you putting some perspective on this, Sully. Appreciate it because perspective is what matters here. This is what a correction looks like. And we haven't had a correction in a long time. You know, we went a year and a half uh, up until the end of last year uh, with barely a five percent drawdown. So people have gotten unused to what a correction looks like and we're down 10 percent peak to trough from the early january highs that was only a month and a half ago okay corrections generally last two to three months if you look at the next three weeks okay in the next three weeks you are highly likely to get some resolution on russia and ukraine and i'm not saying which way it's going to go whether putin will uh, go in or stay out but you're likely to get some resolution there also in three and a half weeks the fed meets and they're going to pull the band-aid off. They're going to rip the band-aid off. They're going to give us the first rate hike. Maybe it's 25, maybe it's 50 basis points. They'll give us some guidance. But here's the point. We'll be through the heart of the adjustment that the market is going through right now. Corrections last two to three months. I think this correction will be over by the first quarter. And, Sully, when it's over, you've got corporate capex coming, you've got infrastructure, you've got jobs aplenty, and it looks like supply chains are easing. So, there's a lot to be positive when you get through the next three weeks of CHOP.
2: Next three weeks of CHOP. You know, but we got to remember, Josh, we came into the Russia situation already in a weakening tape. I mean, the markets had started to rattle before Vladimir Putin rolled in. Your
4: take. I'm not a geopolitics guy, but it's not clear to me that we should interpret anything coming out of Eastern Europe or Uh, Russia's state-run media or our own talking heads on 24-7 cable channels as though anybody knows anything about what's going to happen there. Somebody could fire a, a shot accidentally and it could completely change whatever our expectations are from one second to the next. So we should not spend any time on that. I agree with Jim. This is what a correction feels like. We have 25 million brand new investors who first started uh, within the last 18 months, they've never seen this before. Um, if you told me, I know statistically we're not in a bear market, but if you told me we were in a bear market, I, I probably wouldn't argue with you. If you think about the fact that 28% of stocks in the Nasdaq Composite are down 60% or more, about a third of stocks are are down 50% or more. Like when you look at a tape like that yep. with this many names, um, you you know in in that state. Basically, it's a psychological bear market, whether the index reflects that or not. If you own individual names, it's a bear market for you. So that's not in in and of itself a bad thing. And I do agree with Jim. Now we're through earnings. Earnings season was strong. The the pre-announcements weren't great. There's a lot more negative guidance than uh, we've had in recent quarters. Uh, But the countervailing uh, force to those uh, negative things are – Now that we're out of earnings, the buybacks kick back in. That's one. Two, probably going to go a few weeks before anybody has anything negative to say. If they had something bad to say about the outlook, they would have dropped it in the last four weeks. Um, And if there is some sort of resolution, even if it's war, by the way, (coughs) uh, the market actually prefers that to sitting here waiting to see what's going to happen. I hate saying that out loud. I'm just giving you the truth. So here's the last thing I want to say, uh, Sully, and I'll let you go to the next person. One of the biggest mistakes investors make is thinking that they always have to know buy or sell. There's a third answer. Uh, Buffett talks about this game as being no called strikes. You don't have to do anything. So if you just put five uh, long trades in a row in good companies and all five of them went against you within 24 hours, maybe stop. Maybe you don't do anything for a second. Regroup, get your thoughts together. You don't have to have an answer every day, buy or sell. You could just sit tight And I think if you've been doing that really since the second week of January, you're probably in better shape than the people who think they're going to trade their way out of this. You're not going to.
2: And, Joe, it feels like there is a bit of that going on with the newbies. I think Josh makes a really important point about the 25 million new. You and I have talked about it. We've talked about it. Steph and I have talked about it. If you are under the age of 45, for example, running money, an investment advisor, a hedge fund, whatever, you have never lived In this kind of inflationary environment, you can read a book, you can look at history, you can say, well, back then this did what? But you've never actually managed through it. And I can tell you this much, Joe, and you know about high velocity trading and and hedge funds. There is a dearth of buyers right now that there is no it's a no bid market. Liquidity simply is not there. And to Josh's point, maybe a lot of people simply are sitting on their hands because the bids for a lot of these big stocks aren't there or the spreads are just way too wide.
1: Yeah, and I, I think that's the right behavior for the institutional investor. And, and clearly right now, uh, the institutional investor, whether it's in the taxable fixed income market, the traditional fixed income market, or the equities market, they're they're sitting back and they're awaiting further clarity, and that happens to be the right behavior. I think retail, unfortunately, the statistics will show you, is probably participating a little bit more than they should be in this environment. I also think that when you describe the individual who has never really traded through an inflationary environment, you have a whole generation that really only know about price corrections. And there is absolutely a distinction between a price correction and a time correction. Brian, if you think about it, in the last 10 years since the great financial crisis, any type of price decline, whether it was 10 percent or even 20 percent, like in 2011, 2018 or 2020, you had a very aggressive V-shaped recovery. You didn't have to endure or sit and wait for that recovery to unfold in a U-shaped nature. And I think what's different about 2022 is time is probably the biggest enemy. As it relates to price, we've probably done most of the damage to the overall indexes. You could slip below the lows from January 24th, but I don't think you're going to get too far away from it. But it's really about time and having the ability to understand while you're waiting for time to unfold, the risk assumption has to be low, to Josh's point. You can't be out there uh, assuming a tremendous amount of risk and glowing leverage when you have zero clarity on Ukraine and one, what the Federal Reserve ultimately is going to do here in March.
2: And we'll get to the Fed because the Fed is probably a bigger longer term issue than what's going on right now, Steph. Except for this, to Josh's point, Maybe two years ago, we were all epidemiologists, right? Now we're all geopolitical experts on this. We don't know how this will play out. We we have have 2014 as a guide. The annexation of Crimea markets wavered a little bit, came down, and then resumed their run-up. We don't know how this is going to play out. Absent some sort of pan-European land war, maybe we've seen some of the worst of it from a market perspective, Steph. But you also can't rule out the fact that something bigger... And worse, maybe it relates to energy. Maybe pipelines get cut off. Maybe Germany runs out of electricity because of this. There are some things you need to consider, are there not?
5: Absolutely, Brian. It's good to see you, by the way. Um, Look, I think we've all been saying for the next couple of weeks, we've said it actually last week, um, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to see choppy markets. We're going to see choppy markets because of what you just said, unknowns, right? The market doesn't, doesn't understand unknowns and certainly doesn't like it. So it's really tough to digest between the Fed, inflation, Ukraine. I do think it's the Fed and inflation are more important at this current point. We'll have to see and wait on, on, on the Ukraine. but. Earnings have been good. 78% of the companies have reported and they beat, or or 78% of the companies have beaten expectations, rather, um, by about 6%. And yet, these uncertainties have led to multiple contraction. You've seen the multiples on the S&P 500 Mm. go from 21 times to 19 times, right? 19 times is still above average, right? The average is about 17 times. So we could see more weakness, more choppiness. But I really do think we have to get through the Fed and get the clues from them. We have to be data dependent. They're going to be data dependent as well. I actually thought some of the numbers that came out today were pretty good. The PMIs, manufacturing services, confidence. um, Those were actually pretty good. They're holding up well. Uh, Um, My biggest concern, Brian, is oil, obviously, uh, and inflation in general, and what that does to demand destruction for the consumer. The consumer is 70 percent of the U.S. economy, so we can't have them falter. I think they're in fine shape right now. But we have to watch. I for want sure. to follow
2: up with you on that. And by the way, talk to our producer Patty Martell out in her hometown of L.A. this weekend paying 5.50 a gallon for gas and all these other things that input costs are coming through. A quick follow-up to you, Steph, on that. I saw a video over the weekend of a guy on a high wire. He walked between two hot air balloons. Is the highest high. It's a true story, by the way. Don't do that. I got sick just watching it, but I almost thought someone should make a meme of that and put Jay Powell's face on that high wire walker, because that, I feel, is what they're trying to do with the balance sheet unwind. Now you've got the Russia stuff sort of layered on top of it. Maybe you don't have to be nervous, but it is maybe a nervy time. I mean, we're relying on the Fed to get it right in the greatest high wire financial trick of all time.
5: Yeah, they're definitely behind the curve, and it's been very disappointing. Uh, we went from transitory to not transitory to now all these Fed governors speaking and confusing people, quite frankly. So. I just think that you've got to stay away from that. It's, it's noise at this point in time. They're going to do what they're going to do, and they're going to be focused on data, the data that comes out. So if you, go to, if you get four hikes, that just gets you back to normal policy. If it's more than that, it's more than that. Then they think and they see that the data can support higher rates. We're coming off a really low base, though, too, and that is something to keep in mind. So that's why I still think, again, I go back to consumer, and I still think they're in good shape, but we absolutely have to watch. Watch. this inflation is really out of control, and the Fed really does have to squash on it, and it might be harder for them to do it.
2: Although kind of refreshing to not have every single day. Well, Brainerd says this, and Bullard says that, and oh, my gosh. Yeah. All right, now let's get to our headline guest on this day, and that is Jonathan Krinsky. He's the chief market technician at BTIG, no doubt listening, champing at the bit to want to get in on this conversation, Jonathan, because technically you do see a little more pain ahead. You think we're going below 4,000 on the S&P 500. What are you looking at?
6: Yeah, so I think I think a big part of that is uh, just this lack of capitulation that we, we've we seen. I think if you look at some of the survey metrics, uh, investors are talking a bit bearish. They're saying that they're bearish. But I think if you look at positioning and some of the fund flow data, it's telling a bit of a different story. So I think maybe investors are talking bearish but not quite acting that way. Uh, we've seen over the last three weeks over $5 billion in, in inflows into equity ETFs. Um, we've also seen if we look at positioning from s p emini futures traders they are pretty much as long as they've been over the last decade um, so not consistent with with the big panic lows we saw um, in 2011 2015 or 2020 and then you know really if you look at the volume profile of the market um, we look at declining volume as a ratio to overall volume. Yep. Um, and if you look at a 20-day moving average of that, it's just not as elevated as, as we've seen. We haven't seen any of those big 90% down days. And I think the reason for that is because there's been a rotational aspect in the market. You know, we've, we've been talking a lot about wanting to favor some of the cyclical areas, some of the value areas in the market. And we still think that's the case, um, such as banks and energy. But ultimately, in order to see that true capitulation, you're going to have to see kind of the baby get thrown out with the bathwater. We don't yeah. think we've seen that but yet. But, I mean,
2: Jonathan, you heard my point. I know Josh has got a question for you right after this. But you heard my point, Jonathan, at the beginning, which is we started the year with one of the weakest or the weakest starts to a year Forever or in 50 years, depending on what group of stocks you're looking at. This is kind of before we started to see Vladimir Putin make these moves, by the way. By the way, something that's been going on in the Donbass region for more than eight years. There have been fights there for eight years, but it almost feels like the market wanted to sell off for a variety of reasons coming into the new year. Do you think the tape would be this week if it wasn't for what's going on in Russia, or would it be the same market if there was complete peace? In Eastern Ukraine.
6: Yeah, I think a lot of what's going on in the market is is what started well before Russia-Ukraine. I think um, if you look at the arc names that have kind of taken the brunt of the high-growth, long-duration selling. I mean, those peaked almost a year ago, right? So we've seen kind of this rolling rotational bear market that started with some of the some of the growth areas of the market. Um, you know, up to this point, the holdouts have been kind of the mega cap. Names, uh, some of the fang names have have held up, and then some of those cyclical value areas. So, to your point, I think you know the Russia-Ukraine news could certainly be dry, exacerbating some of it, but I I don't think it's it's all of the issues that's going yeah. on or the, under the hood. Josh,
4: hey John, good to see you. I love the uh, I love the sofa behind you. Very nice. Um, I wanted to stick to technicals and get off the Russia stuff. Isn't it Isn't it simple? Isn't it just simpler to say um, the S&P 500, the NASDAQ 100 and the Dow are all trading below their January lows? So if you are short to intermediate term and more of a trader than a long term investor, like isn't the right answer? Just rallies should be sold so long as we're below those levels. uh, We are guilty until proven innocent and not vice versa after having it the other way around for so long. Like why why can't people wrap their heads around that? Is it just that they they haven't seen it before, or they forget what that uh, what that feels like? What's, what's your take on this?
6: I think what Joe said at the top of the show is spot on. It, it we haven't dealt with a time correction, and I would argue that a time correction can be much more painful than a price correction. If, if you look at the crash we had in 2020, I think that happened so fast a lot of people didn't even really have time to sell or, or realize what was, you know, what their PL was doing. And so um, from my perspective, the time correction is going to be more painful. Again, we've seen ARC names and those high growth names. They're in a been in bear market for a year already. And they're showing little signs that of basing. Um, I think the other thing you have to recognize is that the credit markets, credit spreads are continuing to widen out. And that's what we highlighted last week. Even as the S&P and Nasdaq had bounced off their lows, credit spreads continue to widen. So I think as long as credit spreads, you know, credit continues to act like it is, I think it's uh, it's a bit premature to, to try to call a low. And what we said at the top of the show, you know, you need to see that capitulation in price and, and volume. And we just haven't seen uh, any evidence of that yet by our work.
2: Jonathan Kritzky, appreciate your views. Sees the market going south under 4,000 on the S&P 500. Jonathan by the way, I do love the couch. West Elm Krinsky. Thank you. All right. Oil prices continue to their push toward 100 bucks a barrel, hitting their highest level since 2014 today. Obviously, the Russia-Ukraine developments getting the attention. But remember, all of this is coming into an already tight market. Demand has been above supply for a long time. That goes not only with oil, but with natural gas in Europe as well. Jim Labenthal, I get it. This is going to get the attention. The people I'm talking to that I trust in the oil market say maybe... Three to six dollars max is the bid on oil because of what's happening. But the tape has already been strong and 100 was probably happening whether this occurred or not. Your take on oil and your take on oil stocks, which as bad as the year's been, they've been great.
3: Yeah, and I think it's very clear that what you just implied is true. There is a systemic supply-demand mismatch globally. Um, we know this, and this is before Russia does whatever Russia does. Um, it's for that reason, Sully, that I have one of the highest beta-to-oil uh, plays in my portfolio, which is Transocean. Uh, I'm sure you know the name. This is a, a company that when oil was 20 to $30 a barrel, nobody wanted to rent their rigs uh, to go out and drill for the highest-cost barrel of oil, which is out there miles deep under the ocean. Yeah. Um, but now, as you pointed out, out, oil at 90 to $100 a barrel, people are going to start taking those, those uh, drill rigs and drill ships out of cold storage and starting to put them to use. Um, so I, I, I'm overweight energy. I will admit, Sully, I did trim Marathon Petroleum. That's probably a name you know well as, <laughs> as well. It just had done so fabulously well that I had to take the profits there. But still, this is a systemic mismatch between supply and demand. It's going to go on for many quarters, if not a couple of years.
2: Yeah, in fact, Joe and uh, Jimmy, if you said this, I apologize, I kind of doing two things at once. Transocean just signed one of its biggest deals ever for deep water exploration. I think it was more than a $400 million contract. You forgive me, I can't remember with whom. But, Joe, you do wonder if what's going on over there, and I know, you know, oil is truly global, and that gas there is a little more regional. But what's going on over there will, despite some obvious political opposition, sort of have you know, a quiet effect well, there's a wink and a nod to U.S. producers and saying maybe we need to produce a little more here so we are less reliant on this kind of stuff happening around the world. Your take.
6: Hmm.
1: I'm not so sure that actually happens, Brian. I mean, I think it's very clear and a lot of the appreciation in the price of oil came because of a clear uh, policy adjustment from the previous administration. To President Biden's administration. So you had uh, the CEOs, the CFOs for E&P companies really thinking about what? Thinking about protecting the dividend or maybe growing the dividend, buying back their shares and worrying about ultimately their stock price. There was not this incentive to invest that incremental dollar in the wellhead and grow production. So uh, I'm not so sure ultimately that you will be seeing that. I think you're correct. I think the price of oil was going above $100 without what we're now confronted with as it relates to Ukraine and Russia. You've got a confluence of a, an incredibly strong headwinds from rising demand coming out of a pandemic, dwindling supply, policy adjustments, and now geopolitical concern. So it's it's reflected in the curve of oil. I mean, I've been, been in the oil markets for the last 30 years. And when the spot price of oil is $93 today, and you go one year out, and it's $10 less than that. It's telling you it's a very tight market, and it's a market that you want to be investing in, uh, both in terms of derivatives and energy equities. Yeah,
2: and Transocean, Steph, by the way, did did five new deals announced a week ago, four in the Gulf of Mexico, one in the North Sea, so good deal for the rig there. Here's the interesting thing. I know Tom Lee's been pounding the table on the OIH and some of these other oil and gas ETFs. There is some kind of a giant disconnect, Steph, that maybe you can help us figure out. Because the OIH is about 70 bucks off its lows of six months ago, so it's had a nice run. But if you overlay the OIH with, say, a five-year chart of oil, may I please get the OIH with a five-year chart of oil control room? You're going to see <laughs> the fact mm-hmm. that the OIH was about $600 the last time that oil was here. So either oil is overpriced and is going to come down or the equities are going to come up because there is this massive disconnect that normally, at least historically, You don't see.
5: Energy is about 3.5% of the S&P 500. It got as low as 2% it's of tiny, the S&P nothing. 500. Just tiny, tiny, tiny. So for the most part, people could ignore this sector, myself included, because you just didn't have to be there. You didn't need the exposure and the aggravation. Um, but, you know, one, once upon a time, energy was up to 19% of the S&P 500. Who's to say it can't go back there? U.S. inventories are 10% below their five-year average. The OECD uh, inventories are 9% mm. below their five-year average, they're on an absolute basis back to 2014 levels. You talked about demand; demand has been strong. We know Russia pumps about 10% of world oil. Uh, Russia also, though, provides 80% of nat gas to Europe. So I'm more worried about the nat gas side of things. As you it's should one be. One of the reasons why nat gas is up 23. Yeah, and, and and it's one of the reasons why nat gas just this year alone is up 23%. So what do you do as a PM? I mean, I, I think that this is definitely a place you want to have exposure. I am double my benchmark. So I'm about 7% in in my benchmark, uh, excuse me, in my portfolio relative to the benchmark. Um, And I have a barbell approach. I'm owning quality like Chevron, even though it's up 18% year to date. uh, It does offer a very attractive dividend at 4.1%. They just raised it, by the way. They're delevering. They're doing all the right things in terms of M&A and asset sales. And I just think they have a very good global uh, bet and, and, and slant, if you will. On Schlumberger, it's much more volatile, right? And it's got more beta. But this to me is a hidden technology play their technology helps their customers become more efficient. And so that's one of the reasons why for the last six quarters, they've had margins see expansion. And they're actually forecasting this year, 200 basis points, more margin expansion. This is a, a stock that's trading at about 11 times EV to EBITDA. And they're going to grow total revenues yeah. um, about 15%, about 15%. So I like these these, uh, these two names to play it. I also own Diamondback Energy. But I don't think you need to own a whole ton of these names. I just think you have to have a sizable bet. And that's kind of the thing that I'm, I'm working on at this point.
2: You know, and Josh, listen, there is, and let's say you're purely ESG. You think I will never own fossil fuel stocks again. They're dinosaurs, literally dinosaur juice. They're dead to me. Fine. There's a very easy and lazy way to look at the renewables. They say, well, oil price is high. That's good news for Tesla and Rivian because it drives people to EVs. I'm not so sure about that. The bodies of these cars are made of Plastic, that's natural gas, or aluminum, prices at 10 year highs. The batteries are made of lithium and nickel. Nickel prices at the highest since 2011. It's not just this easy thesis high oil by Tesla, is
4: it? Sully, I must insist that you stop shattering the woke uh, illusions that we've all created for ourselves. You're really going to cause some serious cognitive dissonance amongst the audience. ESG is great because there's actually no definition. You could just basically say whatever you're doing is ESG and feel better about yourself for the rest of the day. Everything that you just said is absolutely true. It's very tough to uh, take money and try to, like, express your own morality when you're investing in public companies because, like, it's a spectrum. It's not this company's good, this company's bad. Um, I think on, on, on this energy stuff as it, as it uh, pertains to Russia, uh, Europe. The big picture thing for me is that if you really are concerned about this and you think Russia's gonna like, start cutting off their customers from supply and potentially jeopardizing a huge part of their own uh, e- economy, if that's what you think is gonna happen, maybe you can look at some of the LNG plays based here. But those stocks have already rallied furiously. Yeah. And Sully, I know you, you know these companies really well. Look at LNG as an example. Um, this, I mean, the stock has gone from 30 to 115. Like, do you think there's more juice uh, to squeeze out of that idea? Um, so I, it, I don't know that it's actionable for most investors. I think if you want to be exposed to energy, you shouldn't do it because you think there's a hot war in, in Ukraine brewing. You should do it for other reasons that will maybe persist beyond this moment That's
2: well said because uh, with tellurian and you mentioned shinier owned by jack fusco and team yeah to your point josh they have sold pretty much every hydrocarbon they can i mean unless they can add another train or more ships which they cannot right now i i don't see where that extra to your point juice is coming from all right we got a lot more to do here straight ahead on halftime report why one top wall street analyst says now is the time to buy AMD. Yes, there's stuff happening outside of Russia. The man behind the call joining us and the investment committee will discuss and debate. Halftime is back in two minutes. Dow's down 350. We're back right after this.
8: Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon. And here is our CNBC News update at this hour. The parents of Ahmad Arbery and their attorney celebrating the hate crime and other convictions of three white men who were also found guilty in Arbery's murder. Arbery's mother saying that she will never get her son back, but he will now begin to rest in power. In Minneapolis, closing arguments have begun in the trial of three former police officers charged with violating George Floyd's civil rights. The prosecutor says that the officers sat by and chose to do nothing as Floyd died. And on the news tonight, team coverage of both cases, that's tonight at 7 Eastern. Supreme Court has ended former President Trump's battle to stop the release of White House records related to the January 6th riot on Capitol Hill. The House panel investigating the insurrection says that it needs the documents to understand what role Trump may have played in the events that day. And Russian lawmakers have given President Putin authority to use military force outside of the country. Putin also says that he wants Western nations to stop shipping weapons to Ukraine. President Biden, meantime, is scheduled to speak on Ukraine and Russia in about 30 minutes. Brian, I'll send it back
2: to you. All right, Rahel, thank you very much. All right, time now to get some investment committee moves. All right, Jim's making one. Joe's kind of making one. Stephanie's going to compliment Jim on his moves. Jim, we're first going to get to two of your <laughs> positions uh, because they're sort of both consumer-ish. Win, obviously, the big casino gambling thing, Macau and Vegas, and also Paramount Streaming. Why?
3: Yeah. So Paramount, uh, I talked about a lot last week, and this is just simply in this business of of streaming uh, uh, services, it's the subscriber count that matters. The growth rate at Paramount is eye-popping and you've got to respect it. But what I'd like to spend a little more time on is when, because Sully, for the last nine months, I've been traveling quite a bit. I think I've got like 50,000 air miles. And whether it's Las Vegas seven months ago, whether it's Utah, you know, ski resorts two months ago, or this past weekend out in Patty's HOMETOWN OF L.A. People are out, okay? There are crowds everywhere. I'm not just talking airports. I'm not just talking airlines. People are out and about. They're coming out of their foxholes. You see it in the TSA numbers. In the past three weeks, you've had two days where you've had higher counts through TSA uh, than there were in the corresponding days three years ago, well before the pandemic hit. So that's not gonna change, all right? The crowds on the Santa Monica Pier are not gonna thin if Putin invades Ukraine. People are coming out as Omicron fades. That's gonna stay. So a company like Wynn is going to be a beneficiary there.
2: Yeah, okay, fair. By the way, we've got to just give a shout-out to, like, half the country, which they, they look at us like we're stepping out, and they're like, we never stepped in. Go to, I was in Houston a year and a half ago, Charleston, <laughs> Miami. There, you walk around, you're like, oh, it's 2018 here. So I want to give a shout-out to those parts of the country for that, Joe. But I, I do want to ask you, Jim, one follow-up. Or, no, Steph, actually, I'll ask you about Wynn, because hmm. if you have traveled recently, you know one thing. Prices are... I don't want to say out of control, yeah. but they're high. And I do wonder, as much demand as there is, is there any concern of yours, and you own win that even when that marginal traveler is going to look to book a room at some hotel in Vegas and it's 400 a night and the dinner's $200, bucks, they are going to pass?
5: Well, it's entirely possible. Leisure travel has been very strong in the recovery. It's business travel that actually and conventions that hasn't recovered. And so that's kind of why I own WIN for this year, because I expect that to see recovery. By the way, you're talking about pricing. Did you see that Las Vegas, their revenues were up 186% year over Mm. year? It's demand and it's pricing, and that's helping margins. And they're kind of waiting until Macau recovers, right? So in the meantime, though, you have Las Vegas and you have Boston, and they're humming. And I like this asset sale that they just put up with Encore. Um, and it's, that gets some $1.7 billion. We'll see what they're going to do with it. I hope they pay down debt, but we'll have to watch and see. But I, I like this story for 2022. there's sure.
2: still about, what, $3 trillion in excess savings, according to Goldman Sachs, still floating around out there. So we'll see. Uh, let's switch gears. Joe says you, you got stopped out of Coinbase. Explain what happened.
1: Simple, Brian. It's been happening a lot since the beginning of the year. I'm going to put stops in. I'm going to manage my risk. About two weeks ago, I was on the show, gave a trade in Coinbase to have an entry somewhere around 204. That's what I did. Got in there, suggested a 187 stop. And as I said, a lot of stops are getting elected in my portfolio here so far year to date. Coinbase was one of them.
2: Coinbase, any chance you're looking to get back in? There's a book, Buy High, Sell Higher. I don't know if you know the author of that book. But, but wow. is, there, is there a chance to jump back into some of these names?
1: <laughs> Brian, there's this place. It's called the Penalty Box, and I believe in the Penalty Box. And right now, there's a lot of names that I've owned that are in the Penalty Box.
2: Yeah. Josh, is there a stock that maybe this is I just invented a new segment for Halftime Report. You're welcome, Patty and Prashant and everybody else. Is there a stock you'd put in the Penalty Box, Josh? Why not? Let's talk hockey.
4: I put the whole market in the penalty box. Listen, yeah, I have, uh, <laughs> I have, some, I have, some, I have some buy limit orders in for some stocks that uh, I, I feel that I'm going to get them uh, much lower. Some of these prices, when I first put them in in January, seemed ridiculous at the time, but now we're coming into range. Those names include Meta, uh, Lululemon, Moderna. I'm bidding for Netflix much lower. And there's a couple of others. And I won't get them all, but I do this anytime we're in a correction or, or a bear market. And it's just a phenomenal way to capitalize on the indiscriminate selling that ends up happening, usually toward the end of these things. So uh, I'm, I'm waiting to catch somebody else's falling knife. Uh, I've done it historically yeah. for a long time, and I feel that it's a, a great approach rather than— the next day, we see the S&P up 2% and everything's green, being like, oh, yay, it's over. It's yeah. not over. It's not over. Well, so th- this is the way I do it.
2: Facebook down 2%, but I just hope you're never the, the, the ref for Joe's Kids hockey tournament. Get in the basket. Everybody's out. All right, guys, thank you. All right, let's talk AMD, Advanced Micro Devices, down 30% from its recent highs. Joining us now is Bernstein, Stacy Rascon, who upgraded the stock to outperform from Market Perform. It is the first... Outperform on the stock from Stacy in ten years. It is your call of the day. I mean, Stacy. First off, congratulations for just being around for ten years in this business. Yeah, I mean, on the it's, sell it's side, good to have longevity in this career. And, 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 because, ten months at this point is a long time. So, congrats. Why now? Why the first outperform yeah. in a decade? Yeah. Now you, you bet. got. I mean, what, in what triggered it? Really, we've been
9: looking at this for a while as it's been coming in. What really triggered it was Intel's comments last week at their Analyst Day, specifically around Data Center. And they basically said that it's open season on Data Center for the next, like, several years. Intel, for your watchers who may not be aware, they pushed out their server roadmap. They had a product called Granite Rapids that was supposed to be here in 23. They pushed it out to 24. They're backfilling it with another product, which is not as good. They're basically telling you that their own server roadmap for the next, like, several years is deficient. And they acknowledge that they are going to be losing share for at least at least through through 2023. So it was those statements and sort of like a frank acknowledgement from Intel on the competitive situation that their data center business finds itself. And that was kind of what finally tipped me over the edge. And, and, and that's why we, we, we put this out today. But
2: yeah, I mean, a lot up, of good go ahead. Of,
9: but there's a lot of other good stuff that has happened with the stock. As you, as you mentioned, it is down 30 percent off the peak in November. It's down 20 percent year to date. It's all multiple, by the way. The, the price-to-forward earnings multiple is down 50% off of that November peak. The earnings are actually up 30% since then, the forward earnings. The stock today is, is about under 30 times uh, next 12-month uh, price-to-forward earnings. It's 20 times or even less unlikely likely $5 plus in earnings power that I think they get in, in relatively short order. I don't think that $5 is a peak either. Um, their share is, is, is increasing. Their mix is still improving. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then even if you're good, like they just closed that deal. Most of the street has this deal dilutive. They suggested it's actually accretive in the first year, which suggests that they must have a much more positive impression of the Xilinx revenue trajectory than I think is currently shared on the street. So you put all that together yeah. with Intel's comments I mean, it seemed like a good time.
2: Joe, I know you own it. You got a question for Stacy?
1: I do, Stacy. First of all, thank you for finally coming around. Uh, I appreciate the <laughs> humility on that. But. Are we are we basically in an environment right now where it's about Taiwan semi, Nvidia, and AMD, and all the rest, including Intel, are the unfortunate beneficiaries of just an incredibly wide gap as it relates to market share and ability to grow earnings?
9: Well, talk about a gap. I mean, it's sort of funny. I, I think AMD's actual limitation right now is capacity, and I suspect the more capacity they can get at TSM, the more share they will be taking. That is their limiting factor right now. So I'm really happy to see TSMD spending as much money as they are. Um, I think the more they're spending and the more capacity that's available for AMD, I think it's better. By the way, I think this also explains some of what Intel's doing. Intel is obviously using capacity as a strategic weapon. And this is, to to Intel's credit, they've got a lot of issues. This is one of the things that I think they recognize. And it is a strength that they've got a lot of money to deploy. And they are going to be putting a lot of fabs in the ground. For Intel, we'll see if they can fill them. Um, But they are definitely using that as a weapon. I think we're all seeing how important having access to really solid amounts of, of, of leading edge capacity really is. And so I'm glad to see TSMC at least putting and, it on. And Stacy.
2: I was out at a conference last week in Houston, had a chance to interview the CEO of On OnSemi, uh, Hussein, and he was a little more sanguine. He wasn't saying supply chains are going to get fixed in, in two months. He saw it more yeah. maybe a six-month to one-year I understand that all these companies, we like to lump them in, right? They're in on ETF, the SOX. They all do different things. They, they, all have, they, do. they all have different end markets. They've all got different supply chains. Do. do you like an on? Are there other names that are in markets that we don't talk about as much as an AMD that are on yeah, your radar? I mean, you
9: know, there's a bigger debate right now. on this kind of peak cycle versus stronger for longer. And while things are still very tight, I'm a little more in the peak cycle camp broadly. I think that there is evidence of things like overshipment and stockpiling in a number of these end markets. I'm actually worried like auto yeah. and industrial, which are sort of the like the shining stars right now. Those are the markets that I'm a little more worried right now. Data center yeah. and some other things where, again, guys like NVIDIA or a and are playing. I'm a little less worried right
2: now. Stacy, pre- pleasure. Thank you very much. First upgrade yeah. in a Good decade. Here, wow. All right, let's switch gears. Shares of McDonald's, they're higher. Carl Icahn, you might re- remember him from such shows as this one. Launching a proxy fight with the company over its treatment of pigs. This is true. That story next.
7: You seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.
10: What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a
0: comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash rich. Edward Jones, member SIPC.
2: All right, this may be the oddest story of the day, at least the most delicious. Activist investor Carl Icahn is launching a proxy fight for two board seats at McDonald's. He's pushing, though, for more humane treatment of pigs by McDonald's food suppliers. Kate Rogers here now with the story. Kate, what in the world is going on?
0: <laughs> hey, Brian. Well, Icon is taking aim at McDonald's suppliers over how they treat pregnant pigs and also pushing, as you mentioned, for two board seats at its, uh, for election at its annual meeting. Now, the activist owns about 200 shares, according to McDonald's, and is looking to have McDonald's suppliers move to crate free pork. The fast food giant said it has been a leader on this issue, adding that it sources approximately 1% of all U.S. pork production, and it also doesn't make any itself. In 2012, it began its commitment to source from producers, producers who do not use gestation crates. By the end of 2022, the company expects to source 85 to 90 percent of its U.S. pork volumes from sows not housed in gestation crates during pregnancy. The company expects 100 percent of its U.S. pork will come from sows housed in groups during pregnancy by the end of 2024. Now, as a part of this push, Icon has nominated Leslie Samuelrick and Maisie Gansler for election at the shareholder meeting coming this spring. The move here, interesting for Icon, as the stock really isn't a beaten down name and in fact, it's fared better than most over the last six months, up some 6 percent. And as you mentioned, also higher today. Brian, back over to you.
6: All right,
2: Kate, thank you very much. All right, Steph, uh, interesting story here. You own McDonald's. I mean, any take on this angle?
5: Well, he obviously feels very strongly about the treatment of animals. That's a good thing good for thing. sure. I don't think it deserves two board seats, especially since McDonald's already dealing with this. In the meantime, the company continues to do their thing. They just posted 13.4% comp on a two-year stack basis in the U.S., 8% internationally. They're, they ha, they're generating a ton of free cash flow. They are delevering, they are increasing their buybacks, and they are increasing the dividends. So I like this story. And by the way, in Patty's hometown in L.A., there are 72 McDonald's in that city. <laughs> FYI.
2: It's also my hometown, but that's random but interesting. i to have to throw that one into Wex, into WEX tomorrow morning. Go Chargers, by the way. All right. That fascinating stuff. All right. The trade on another Dow stock next. Home Depot falling with the rest of the market and down 20% so far this year. We're going to trade Home Depot. Dow overall now down 400. NASDAQ's off more than 1%. The VIX is up. We're back after this. All right, welcome back. Home Depot beat on earnings, revenue, store comps, and raise the dividend. Its shares are still down 9%. Courtney Reagan joining us now. Courtney, the numbers by any measure were great. What happened?
10: You know, Brian, it's actually not that uncommon that even with very strong results, Home Depot shares don't move higher, as you noted, down intraday. Home Depot has added more than $40 billion in revenue in two years, with a new goal of $200 billion annually, quote, as soon as we can do it in a sustainable and profitable way. Its outlook, including earnings, falls largely in line with expectations, though. So maybe that's conservative for investors. The home improvement retailer grew comparable sales more than 8%, far outpacing consensus. Online sales grew 6% for the year, 100% in two years. Gross margin, though, did show contraction. On the conference call, incoming CEO Ted Decker said comparable average ticket increased more than 12%, while comparable transactions fell nearly 4%. So the rise in the average ticket driven by, you guessed it, inflation. The cost of building materials, lumber, and other commodity prices are rising. And Decker gave a pretty good example saying framing lumber. Prices there range from approximately 585 to over $1,200 for a 1,000 board feet, an increase of more than 100% just within the quarter. Now, I spoke with CFO Richard McPhail, who said underlying home improvement demand is as strong as we've ever seen it. So while there are supply constraints and inflation, the demand is really strong. He said the retailer hasn't seen clear examples of customers trading down or even substituting due to inflation. So pretty positive commentary from the company, Brian.
2: No reaction, though. Courtney, thank you very much. Jim, you own it.
3: Yeah, this same thing happened last year at this exact time. Great quarter, stock sold off. Since then, the stock's return has been twice that of the S&P 500, even after today's decline. So this is going to be another buying opportunity. Also, fun fact, 32 Home Depots in Patty Martell's hometown of L.A., also your hometown.
2: Am I in some alternate universe. What's happening? I love all the facts and stats. You guys are literally turning me on right now. Pete Nigerian is watching unusual activity in the options market, his latest trades. next on halftime.: All right, time now for unusual activity. Pete Nigerian, welcome in. What are you seeing in the options market, my friend?
11: Thanks, Brian. Well, I'll tell you what, this is the GLD is where I'm going to start. This has already hit six times since the end of January, January 27th. Now, this is an ETF, essentially a gold, uh, obviously, with the spider has made a really nice run to the upside. We continue to see all this buying come in there today. They're buying 10,000 of the March 31st expiring 205 calls. In the other six previous times, they've been buying further out time, but they're looking all over the map in terms of upside, looking for more and more and more. It's already made a pretty nice move so far this year. Next, I've got Micron Technology. Now, MU's another one. We've had multiple hits. We've watched this stock move up from 81 towards 93 today. It pulled back. We got a buyer of 2,500 of this week's expiring 93 calls. They bought about 2,500 of those, Brian, as well. So nice to see that activity in the semiconductors. They've been hammered, but somebody out there thinks that Micron's one of the names that can move to the upside in a hurry.
2: Wow. Watching MU. Pete, thank you very much. All right. Your final trades are next on Halftime. Final trade time. Stephanie.
5: Walmart, the stock that acts like a staple and is more defensive. I like it in this market.
3: Jim. Union Pacific as we recover from this correction. Joe. Joe.
1: Agriculture name, Archer Daniels Midland.
4: Josh. ADM. J.P. Morgan, cheap enough here to buy. Thanks
2: for taking it easy on me, all. Really appreciate it. That does it for
4: us here on Halftime
2: Report. Markets down pretty big. A lot going on. The exchange with Kelly begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast.
1: You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC.